In honor of the finally dying summer movie season, what's the most memorable thing you saw at the movies this summer? I am Matt Patches, and the best thing I saw this at this summer was uh, witnessing a packed theater go ballistic over a shot of carrots in The Help. I guess they looked that delicious. Hey, I'm Dave with a 7, and I'm going to say my sweaty film blog reviewing peers at the late July Captain America screening that had no air conditioning. I mean, you think it'd be something I saw on screen, but that would be giving too much credit to the summer of sequels, prequels, rehashes, and retreads. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with the little neighbor boy with the giant scarred back of the head in the Tree of Life, because the image of his head has stuck with me, and I think it really resonates with the movie's themes of cruelty, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. I'm David Ehrlich, and I want to say it's a tie between Steven Spielberg introducing Cowboys and Aliens on stage before me at uh, Comic-Con and the relief of Cowboys and Aliens actually ending. But if I had to pick an in-movie moment, I would go with the beautiful French waltz that ends uh, one day, <laughs> which uh, I, I'm probably alone on that one. There have been recent developments regarding Operation Kino. It's a a podcast. Podcast. All right, welcome back to this week's Operation Kino. We have a slightly different format this week for you that we are calling the Quarter Quell. If you have read The Hunger Games, you are probably a little bit well, familiar with I guess with we're that officially means. calling it that now. Well, we're calling it that because it's... There's no going back. There's no going back now. It's, well, I just want to say that for the record, I... I did not know what a quell was or that it was a Hunger Games reference until <laughs> well, about four minutes ago. Well, it's technically a verb, not a, uh, not a noun. This will help the podcast do better in Google. That's <laughs> true. Well, if you're familiar with the Hunger Games, the quarter quell, it means that every, uh, 25, every 25 years they change up the format of the Hunger Games. They do something totally different with the format. And this is our 25th episode, so we thought that we would also change up our format. And as we're going into our live show next week, which I'll talk more about in a second, we thought it might be helpful for each of us to kind of pick a movie that was near and dear to our hearts and not just talk about why we think this movie is great, but why this specific movie kind of influences the way we think about movies and what this has about it that really resonates with us. It's, we, we, at first we said we were just going to kind of explain the way we look at movies, but we thought using an individual film to talk about that would be both less boring and more helpful for us to articulate kind of big ideas about what you look for in certain films. Uh, so, predictably, David has picked a Japanese movie that I had never seen before, and uh, Patches has picked Groundhog Day, and somewhere in between, we, uh, we all find a middle ground on the movies that we love. So, yeah, we wanted, we wanted to pick movies that say something about us, not just say something about how great these movies are. So we'll get into that in a minute. But first, a reminder about our live show, which is happening next Monday, September 5th, at the Producers Club on West 44th Street in Midtown Manhattan. It's at 7, 7 p.m., Dave? 7? Yeah, 7 it's actually, p.m. It's actually uh, two Mondays from now. No. Not, not, no. Next Monday is going to be August 29th. That's when I start orientation at school. It's September 5th is the week after. You are correct. That is correct. I will have moved by then. I'm really thinking ahead. September mm-hmm. 5th, Labor Day. You all know when that is. Um, and we will be at the Producers Club doing a live show. We will also have a slightly different format. So we got two weeks in a row or, uh, no, not two weeks in a row. I'm really getting ahead of myself. <laughs> but we guarantee just as much talking over one another. It's true. And yes. you'll actually be able to see it happen. And there's going to be <laughs> swag. There's going to be games. Oh, um, it's like a carnival. It is a carnival. 
Someone will paint faces <laughs> outside. And will we be recording that? This is a, this is going to sound like a stage question, but I uh, legitimately do not know the answer. Are we going to be I, recording I, that podcast? Yes, yeah, of course. I believe we will. Uh, yeah, because the, the day after that, David, you start grad school. I head off to Toronto for the film festival, so we kind of have to because we won't have time to record a regular show. So well, yeah, and Dave well, and I. Well, yeah. Hey, yeah. whatever. We can do that. <laughs> when I say we, I mean the group, the four of us as oh. a, as a unit. So anyway, uh, the live show is coming up. We'll continue updating you about it as the uh, day gets closer. But in the meantime, let's talk about movies and kind of a and change the format. And, uh, just in you know, in case you time this, we're going to have slightly. It's going to be as if we were doing tidbits. Everyone comes in with one specific thing, but they'll be slightly longer, and we will not have a review section. Um, so hopefully this, this works out. We've declared all movies that are coming out this week less than none of us were really interested about. enough to talk about uh, <laughs> any of the movies coming out this week. Why don't you tell us about the movie you brought? Against my volition. Uh, okay, well, I my film is uh, not a Japanese film, as we discussed. It is a co-Japanese film. It's by Paul Schrader from 1985. It's called Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. It's a very unconventional biopic about Japanese author, poet, playwright, uh, nationalistic right-wing uh, hero, Yukio Mishima, uh, martyr for his own causes, etc. This is all very neatly laid out in the film. Uh, it is one of my very favorite films ever made, but that's not necessarily why I picked it. To, speak, to keep true to the format and the idea of this week's episode, I picked it because I thought that it very articulately surmised what I find to be the most interesting elements of the cinema and uh, cinema's potential and what it's capable of. And I do want to preface this by saying that uh, anything that I have to say about this movie, for the most part, uh, it can be said much more articulately, also by myself, uh, on an article that I wrote for Film School Rejects uh, about this film. Uh, I invite you to Google it. Just Google Mishima Film School Rejects. It'll probably come up. Um, so this is all sort of off the cuff, and I'm hoping that the rest of my podcast cohorts will ask certain questions and, and try to make it a more lively discussion, add an element that I couldn't offer in my Film School Rejects article. But I would definitely point you there if I make a mess of things. Um Anyway, so, so I think my interest in this film and what appeals to me about it so much began uh, in the earliest days of, of film school when we were introduced to Andre Bazin, the famous uh, film theorist, and his idea of the myth of total cinema, which is, to put it as succinctly as possible, the idea that the cinema was pioneered by inventors rather than artists who were pushing it forward as a means of capturing reality uh, objectively. And that every advancement in the cinema, be it deep focus or sound or, or whatnot, 3D, why not, um, were done with this intent in mind to push it closer and closer to that end. Uh, and although deep focus is a bad example because that's a very – that was really pioneered artistically as opposed to us. Anyway, um, and, uh, and as a backlash and something that sort of like Werner Herzog and filmmakers of his ilk really pioneered was this idea that uh, – oh, sorry, to complete the, complete the myth of total cinema thing is, is that – 
the cinema, the closer it gets to capturing objective reality, the further away it moves from its potential as a device of uh, getting it at a higher so, like, strata. So the of idea truth of like, sort of uh, like subverting reality, where it doesn't edit, it's just presenting reality. That, according to Bazan, that's the opposite of the point. Right, although the the montage in his films would work against that. But it's like how Robert Flaherty, to go back to the 20s, would fake some of the things and stage some of the events in The Nuke of the North uh, because it was truer to the story that he was trying to tell and was a better example than anything nature could offer him. Uh, and that you know resonated, the, the story that he, and the scenes that he staged resonated in a way that simply pointing his camera towards this, this Eskimo fishing would not have. Um, and so the ways in which cinema is subverted allow it to achieve a higher strata of truth than simply turning the camera on and pointing it at something. And that's a way of looking, um, that's a look, that's a way what of Mishima looking at does. you obviously uh, subscribe to. Right. It's as the filmmakers I champion uh, tend to make phenomenal use of that, whether they be Werner Herzog or Abbas Kiristami or in this case, Paul Schrader. Um, and what I find so remarkable about Mishima is that it takes the most conventional and tried and true type of filmmaking, the biopic, and completely obliterates it into such a way that by distorting, by looking at Mishima's life through a kaleidoscope rather than head-on, rather than like Amelia or Ray and sort of chronologically just skipping around his life, it, 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 it explodes his life in a way that gets at who he was better than a conventional biopic ever would have allowed. And it's, it's I, not an arbitrary decision. It's an ideal one for this particular subject because of the kind of guy that he was. Uh, and the way that the film's structured is that it... it begins on the day it tells you that mishima gathered in 1970 i believe it was gathered some uh right-wing impressionable young men and attempted to stage a coup and restore power to the emperor and then committed ritual suicide by stabbing himself in the stomach uh very publicly and uh right and so that's how the film begins and and the sort of the backbone of the film is cutting to him on the last day of his life as he goes about these motions. Um, in between, we see a lot of different other kinds of filmmaking in that we see these black and white, these very luscious uh, monochrome scenes of him as a child with his invalid grandmother. Um, we see and him growing up and having and having his uh, some, some, well, I'll save that anyway. But uh, I mean, and then most importantly, these are interrupted by recreations of four of his novels. Uh, and what that does, I mean, because the idea of Mishima's big thing uh, was essentially that his life, I mean, the reason that he staged this elaborate suicide was that his life was really the ultimate expression of his art. Um, his, I mean, he, he essentially, uh, he, he said in his own words that perfect purity is possible if you turn your life into a line of poetry written with a splash of blood. I mean, this guy wanted to his life to be the ultimate expression of his art rather than something he could write, which were simply uh, elements of that. And so in, in portraying his writings, uh, as Schrader does with these hyper-real sets that are done on sound stages and, and very obviously so, I mean, the camera... Pull, uh, the sets pull apart and the camera glides over them and revels in their two-dimensionality. Well, those scenes are also um, very lush you get, color as opposed to the black and white scenes that you take as really yes. his childhood or his life. Exactly. And the unifying element to all of these, all of these different types of approaches is Philip Glass's mesmeric and, and very uh, crescendoing score. Um, and as a result, I mean, it's, it's again, it's a very dense film about a very complicated guy. But I mean, essentially what I, 
what I like so much about it is that it uh, it, it captures Mishima on celluloid, celluloid and the the idea that. I mean, it's. Well, I, it's, I have a question for you. Does please. it capture Mishima, or did it create a Mishima you could believe? Uh, like a little bit easier because I, I I don't know how familiar you were with his works beforehand, but I, before seeing this movie, I had no idea about even his uh, story and attempted coup. Uh, but I, I feel like this, because it casts him as a protagonist and goes to such lengths to show you how different sides of a, you know, not sick person, but a troubled person, how uh, each like recreation of his work focuses on uh, a def- uh, I wouldn't on one of the personal issues that he has so it ends up building a rounded character more than I think a portrait of a man and at that point that's when the story needs to make that his life is an art form jump does that make any sort of sense uh, I did at the beginning <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then he sort of lost me. I mean, I think it began as a question as to whether or not I had been familiar with Mishima's works. Well, Dave, to, since you kind of brought up, you know, the way you felt about it, do you feel about this the way that David did? Do you feel like this form of a biopic does get at something higher and, and better? And that, I mean, do you, do you see how this influences the way that David talks about movies? Well, I think it does. I, I think the part of it being a biopic is actually the least interesting part of it. I think the creation of a uh, of a character by uh, dramatizing his works and uh, placing them at relevant points in his uh, aging process is just an amazing way to build a character. And uh, you know, visually, it's amazing. It's the only other thing that I know that Francis Ford Coppola Coppola and uh, George Lucas produced as uh, Captain EO, so I think you know that's definitely it's really a, step a, a sister this, project but, uh, to Captain EO. I think. Yeah, <laughs> that one has about as much to say about reality, I think, as this one does. Except I that mean, one's but I, like what I love, love about, I mean, to that end, what I what I think is so successful about this film is that, as I was saying earlier, none of the decisions that Schrader made as far as structuring this. Uh, telling are arbitrary. They're all very much rooted in who Mishima was and how he wished to express himself, and the. No, you know, it, it, in, this is not, it's not as if saying as a blanket statement that someone is best captured rather, you know, instead of being head on, you know, rather uh, by, you know, the things that, the, the works that they created or any artist. But this particular guy happened to uh, really put himself in, uh, into his works. I mean, I say in this, well, this piece that why I... Why do you, why do you find you're responding so much to this particular portrayal of somebody you know putting mishima himself aside and putting paul schrader and the film almost aside for a second to and try and center on um exactly what you're responding to well i mean the the, uh, it's it's a loaded question i mean i think there's almost everything in this film that i respond to and i think to go back to to bazan as i was talking about in the beginning i mean i think this film is such a beautiful distillation of that idea and that it completely does away with any semblance of documentary reality and as a result, not like not even if you were interested in Mishima, but I think paints a much more intimate and knowing portrait of of somebody, anybody, than his, uh, you know, than a more traditional route may have allowed. And I also think that it's brilliant how, you know, Mishima looked sort of beyond the arts to etch his self portrait, and Schrader looked to Mishima's self portrait to craft a biopic that completely obliterates the format. And so there's a relationship between the subject and the form. 
of the film that I think is, is very interesting. But I think that ultimately it's how all of these things cohere. I mean, not only is this a fascinating film and a riveting one intellectually, but the way that it's expressed aesthetically is so moving and so riveting. I mean, the, from every element of it, from the photography to the score to just the the sweep of how everything is, is put together. It's I mean, I think that it's... Well, I was actually Street. thinking it's about kind that. It's kind of like yeah. I, I think Street. that's such a neat way that, that, that this ties into, you know, movies that we see on a regular basis, that the idea that the movies are not supposed to present you life as it is, that it's life as it... You know, as the artist wants it to be, or as it could be. I really like that Mishima, which is a very artistic, sure. very un- unusual movie compared to the classical Hollywood format, does have that same philosophy behind it as Transformers Three. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you you sim- said it in a way that I think is much more lucid and, and simple than I had been, in, which is that it simply, I mean, it presents it as it is. You know, as it's a sort of abstract but much more accurate truth than simply, you know, something more direct. And you know, this film goes out in a million different directions and uh, it can be difficult to maybe grapple with at first because it's so uh, erratic or seemingly erratic despite how ultimately controlled it reveals itself to be. But it's all getting at one critical idea. Um, and by pulling the center sort of taut, by, by stretching it in all these different directions... I think it, it creates something that's a lot uh, more substantive than simply saying, and then this, and then that, and then this. And I'm not you know, advocating that every film and every story be fractured like this and put it to a kaleidoscope or told like memento. Uh, but I think that the dynamic between form and function in this film is, is very uh, exceptional and, and, and rare. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I think that this is just... It shows the potential of the cinema. I mean, I think that this is and and how it can vitalize stories that may uh, not have a chance otherwise, and how it speaks that ultimate idea that it's it's the way that we. It's not how we capture the world, you know, with the camera that that is what makes cinema such an interesting art form, but how we change it with the camera and the other tactics that are available to us, you know, via the cinema that makes these things so resonant. David, I think that's excellently said. I agree. How does Groundhog Day reflect our reality? <laughs> well, David's much better spoken than I am and uh, better able to reflect on the finer points of, of cinema. Well, that's why uh, we, that's I'm, I'm going to say with, with, no, with no measure of self-deprecation that that is entirely untrue. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, yes, yeah, so I, I chose Groundhog Day uh, partially because it's my favorite film of all time, I think, uh, you know, we, we all, I'm sure, dwell on this idea at some point or for a long, long time. Um, but I, I was reflecting on it recently just in a personal manner to kind of think of it as why is it an extension of how I think about film. And I, I actually remembered a moment in my life where I was with, hanging out with a bunch of high school friends and I was uh, walking to my car with somebody else and she was kind of pissed off at me. And 
we we had this little tiff and it kind of ended with her telling me that ever, everything that I think or do is a joke. I think everything is a joke and I don't take anything seriously. And um, I thought this was very interesting and obviously it's resonated with me for a very long time because I was back in high school <laughs> and yes. Um, but so I think about something like Groundhog Day. It's, um, it's, funny. it's funny when people say these things and they never can know and they can never anticipate how they might exactly. shape the person to whom they're speaking <laughs> for forever. Me. Uh, no. And they just toss it aside anyway. No, you're absolutely right. And – but. It, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just an interesting theory to, thing to hear from somebody else because I, t I take a picture like Groundhog Day. And for me, it's the culmination of everything that I love about movies, about cinema. And I think it's perfectly constructed from that kind of standpoint. I think it utilizes all aspects of filmmaking in, in a genuine, like perf perfect way. And um, But for me, it's also mm -hmm. a, a fantastic experience. And that's definitely, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, where I come uh, – to movie watching, just kind of that feeling that I get and what how, – how does a movie make me feel? And the movie Groundhog Day is a perfect blend of comedy and drama and it kind of defies genre and it tells the story that it cares about telling and has the emotional reactions that come with that. And that's something that I really love about the movie. You know, first off, just kind of like going broad, I think Groundhog Day is a weird movie that I'm surprised ever got made. And these days it wouldn't, or at least it would have to be made by some indie studio, blah, 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 you know, show up at Sundance. But this was a Hollywood movie. It's Bill Murray. Um, it, it, no, I think most people don't think of it as being weird. What what makes you say that Groundhog Day is weird? Well, because it's so genre defiant. You know, it's not beholden to anything. Um, you know, it, it kind of works in a conventional structure, but I still think it just plays it plays by its own rules. You know, the movie never really sets up I'm sure most people know what Groundhog Day is about. Almost everybody has seen it. You know, uh, Bill Murray's Phil Connors wakes up one day while he's reporting on Groundhog Day. He's in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. He wakes up and he's reliving Groundhog Day every single day. So Phil Connors is in this time flux and we never know why. And we never he, – he never really tries to search – for a reason why, which I also think is interesting. And in that way, it starts to find conventions already from the beginning. But because Bill Murray is a phenomenal actor and kind of grounds himself in his character from the first scene, you know, in a news, uh, what's it called, studio and being a dick, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being independent and self-sufficient and being a person that very well exists in the world today by a lot of people and I think a lot of people, even more modern people today, um, even though this movie came out in what, the 90s? Um, are like this. You know, it's being independent is a very important thing and we understand this character from the get-go so we can put him in this weird situation right away. And um, and they avoid all the what-if questions or why and they kind of just play it out and what happens to this person as he experiences these things. And again, why I think I identify so closely to it is because the movie itself is about experiencing life and kind of letting go of the different things that we think are priorities or the, the way we live our lives and how that should influence things. He goes through this day so many times he ends up losing and able to put aside all these things that we care about in our, in our day-to-day lives because that's how we live. And I think it's really interesting just him watching people and interacting with people on a day-to-day -day basis or on a one-day basis. And it, for me, it's just the movie is about love and about 
humanity and interacting and which seems like a really grand idea for something like groundhog day which i think when i tell people it's my favorite film it seems a little silly um because it's generally put in this category of broad comedy i mean i guess at some point he drives off a cliff with a groundhog in his lap but um that is true which is marvelous that those sort of things can get away happening in this movie and that's a testament to harold ramis being able to balance those two those aspects, the really funny parts with kind of these hard-hitting drama points sometimes. I mean, he's literally stuck in a time loop. Um, so it's a little bit sci-fi too. It's very peculiar. Uh, tie it back to the... I, I think I know, get what you're getting at with the girlfriend who said you thought everything was funny, but uh, say it out yeah. loud for me. <laughs> Thank you, therapist. Um, <laughs> Tell me about your mother. No, also. but basically that that's what it comes down to, that there is no such thing as genre and there is no such thing as perspective or the right perspective or the way that something has to be made. Um, and I think I approach film that way for everything that I see. Like why does one uh, – a great example recently that I saw that I believe David hated but some of you liked it, um, 50-50, which is coming out soon. Hated is strong. OK. Sorry. But uh, we'll get there eventually. Um, but that that's a movie that also doesn't feel – like it needs to – it can have its laughs. It can have its tear-jerking moments, you know, and I feel Groundhog is the perfect blend of all of that. And one of the other things for me, like I love Groundhog Day because of how it's made and because it makes me laugh. But I love it because I can also show it to anyone. Like I love being able to watch a movie with people and see how they react to it because I love movies and I love doing this with you three because I just love experiencing the movies with people and seeing what they make other people think. And I'm less concerned with, is a movie good? Is a movie bad? Is it a movie successful? Is it unsuccessful? Is it doing the right things? Is it doing the wrong things? As, as opposed to, is it doing the right things for you? Is it doing the right things for me? You know, that's, that's what I love about Groundhog Day. And I feel like it can be interpreted in so many ways and so many reactions. And I'm glad that a lot of them are positive, but, um, yeah, it just it reminds me how much I love going to the movies and watching. But I also them. think that you know to talk about what your what your girlfriend said in the scene you know, where Bill Murray drives the groundhog off in this very because the, the movie has a bit of a nihilistic streak down its middle uh, is I, I think that I think reflects your personality uh, maybe less than what you <laughs> like in movies. It's the idea that you know not everything you know I don't think it's that you treat everything as a joke, but that um, there is in you know an ex- especially in the more absurd events of life, a certain streak of humor, uh, and something, I don't know. I think it would oh, be just like in psychoanalysis the dark, in, in and anything else, but, uh, you mean in darker moments, there's still humor or is that what Yeah. You know? I mean, just yeah, the, totally. like the ability to just knowing you personally, the, the ability to sort of yeah. see the enjoyable elements of life's darker scenarios. I, totally I mean, do. here's a guy who's stuck in an inescapable time loop and, you know, is, uh, really reached to sort of like Jean Paul Sartre, like, you know, no exit sort of yeah. uh, a play, A and, play I love, by the way. Right. I would figure as much. And uh, here he is, you know, having the time of his life in a way. So The other I, thing I, I about Groundhog Day is like, yeah, I totally agree with you that I, I think I'm an eternal optimist. I try to be. I try and find good in all sorts of things, uh, even when things are terrible. But I will admit that they are terrible. So you can still you know, agree with me if you think something sucks. Um, but the other thing is that I think I love all sorts of film. Like I love Mishima too and uh and i and the films that i love have no like i don't love just horror films or i'm not a sci-fi guy or like i don't like defining myself in that way either similarly to the movie and uh like i can love this hollywood movie it's it's uh it's 
flashy in that way sometimes and it's straight up hollywood filmmaking I but i also was, love independent film too and i love all these foreign films that do things in a wild manner like i don't i don't think of myself as a narrow uh reviewer or analyst of films like i would never put myself in a corner like that what yeah i almost saying? resent groundhog day for sort of owning a premise that's so brilliant that you wish you could see it explored by more than one scenario by more than you're just okay here's well, a why can't you know, it be? A, a bit. I, I mean, mean I, I, think I, I would in, hate in some to... respect it has been, but sure. for the most part, I mean, you know, people always return to that one film. I mean, yeah, when I... something does something so perfectly, it's hard for anybody to come in and be like, "All right, well, I'm going to do it." I can't yeah, resent it's obnoxious. It. Or it's I can't like, resent Why can't we put that. somebody else in that situation and see where, where there that movie leads? You know, it's it's. Uh... I don't. I mean, I have no response to that because I can't. I'm not going to <laughs> poop on the film for <laughs> no, doing I mean, a really, really great job. No, no. no I it's, I mean, it's because the film does such a wonderful job that it is. Uh, it could be, I think, frustrating for to, to see. You know, it's like this. It's everything. It's it's so specific. It's this one. You know, weatherman character is in this one scenario, and it's like, oh, it's such a brilliant premise. And it's done so well that I'd love to see sure. them tackled in a different way. But that's my yes. own thing. Dave, do you have anything to say about Groundhog Day since you've been very quiet this whole time? Oh, I think it's really funny that Patches chose a Bill Murray movie because Bill Murray is totally the kind of actor that you don't realize he's taking something seriously until you kind of see it right. again, <laughs> if that makes any sort of sense. Um, I like – I would. that's the connection I would draw to Patches. Like I can't tell the difference between Patches just getting – enjoyment out of seeing something on screen and actually enjoying something like if you would have asked me right after we saw fast five and i was sitting next to him i would have thought patches loved fast five but he didn't he just enjoys uh big movies he could watch with everybody and talk about fast cars afterwards that's the thing i i was laughing the whole way through fast five and i don't really like it very much i remember i, remember I, I also remember a good thinking you loved everyone. it like I was really having a really great time, and I think if a movie can succeed in that manner, I have to give it some points, and yeah. I, I have no problem with that because, frankly, I love watching movies with all of you guys. We love watching. I'm movies serious. With you. I wanted we to be heartwarming for. A we second. haven't all seen a movie together in a while. But, but I also, I should also say to everyone listening that I really love watching movies with you too, because I love the fact that I've had a chance to be able to do this and be on Twitter and that sort of thing and do this podcast. And that experience adds to my own experience because as a, someone who just wants to soak up film in that respect, the conversation is almost as important to me. Patches, you really should have gone last. I feel like we'll after this. Well, you, you could edit it and last if you want. <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, we gotta, we gotta keep going. It's actually Dave's turn. Dave, please take us away from all this cheer cheeriness yeah, and uh, optimism again. about the human condition. Cheeriness and optimism about the human condition. Okay, my movie is Fight Club, which is <laughs> the David Fincher, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, Helena Bonham Carter, Meatloaf um, starring... <laughs> Uh, film oh, of that. Don't forget Meatloaf. Yeah, Meatloaf like is the unspoken on tour behind that club. That's right. It, it is his most tolerable performance, I say, upsetting all Rocky Horror Picture fans. What about Black Dog? Uh, no, no I don't find Meatloaf very tolerable. His The house that he's in is so bad. 
Anyway, well, I don't want to talk about Meatloaf. I want to talk about Fight Club, guys. <laughs> you brought him up. Yeah. Um, and not only do I think Fight Club is a good movie, um, but I picked it because it came along in a very specific point in my life. And through unwrapping... It met you at a very interesting time in your life. It did meet me at a very interesting time. Metaphorically, it said to you in a parking lot something that changed the rest of your life? Um, sort of. More like my dad afterwards, after we saw Fight Club together, like, there's that flash of the penis at the end, and he... We got up, we walked out of the theater, and he's like, that movie was horrible. And, like, it... I mean, I don't want to distill it to the first time I, like, realized I had an opinion separate than my father's, but it's around that sort of time (laughs) period. But that's not what I want to talk about it either, because it really has nothing to do with the film. I want to talk about how the film managed to, like, trick me, who I was... I'm a very plot-centric person. I went to school to write screenplays. I'm one of those lame people where if you ask me, like, why do you want to make anything? I'm like, just to tell stories, man. I just want to, like, tell people stories that they enjoy. Yeah, you, you use words like act one and act two. Yes, I am uh, aware of the structure, and that's sort of how I enjoy watching things. Or why. Whenever you, someone asks you how your day was, you're like, well, the inciting incident at breakfast this morning was... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it's kind of fun to choose an inciting incident of your day and try to see how that ripples all the way down. But I digress, once again, for like the fourth time, and stop talking about What, are you Club. David Ehrlich now? I know, Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Wait, sorry, I, I cut out for a second. What did I miss? <laughs> yeah. It's better that way. I'm David yeah, Ehrlich's like... life in his third act. No? So Uh-oh. Fight Club. So Fight Club. Um, the interesting thing about Fight Club is it was adapted from a book, and I think adapted very skillfully because the book and the film share the same twist. But it's not really a twist in the book. It's more of a twist in the film, which I'm going to spoil Fight Club, guys. Here we go. Brad Pitt is Edward Norton. They're all one character. No. Yeah, one dude. But so the interesting thing is when you're structuring a film like this is you're stringing me along thinking that this is a film for a teenage boy like myself that is talking about being frustrated with consumerism and blowing it all up as a response, which is a great message to send to a teenage boy. And I plugged into it and there's weird Hell in the Bottom Carter sex innuendos and an interesting sex sequence. And it sort of bought the teenage masculine part of me in uh, and brought it into the movie. And I decided I liked it. Went back, rewatched it. And now knowing the plot, um, you know, twist at the end, you're allowed to go back and look at each one of those scenes as a character talking to himself. And so I literally got a, I got a literal introduction to theme the second time through. Because if you watch Fight Club knowing that it's a man arguing with himself, you see that there's a lot of almost... The theme is laid out directly for you and said to you several times, right out to it's not your job or it's not what you own. So the process of communicating theme through conversation suddenly was very apparent to me as someone who's very interested in how a story is structured. And so, I mean, I think it's also interesting because I think the same thing that interests me about the way Fight Club is structured sort of brought David Fincher into the projects. If you look at this in comparison to other David Fincher movies... Uh, David Fincher is very comfortable uh, allowing characters to develop within a plot-based procedure. So whether it's, uh, you know, Seven or Zodiac, which are sort of based on a mystery element, so you know that the potential endgame, whether or not he delivers it to you, is to find the killer. Or Social Network has, like, you know, a business uh, sort of 
through line that's historically tracking the business of the social network as it relates to these two characters or pan stuff like panic room that takes place in one day sort of has that unity of vision alien three, which is in a short period of time. And it's basically sort of a run thing. He allows uh, characters to build within a set plot structure and fight club on its surface. The first time you watch it, isn't that at all. It's like a free floating sort of man slowly falling apart, going crazy movie. And it's not until you know the entire subtext of the movie that you see it's a uh, sort of progression of a man slower into himself as being challenged by this outside woman force he doesn't know how to deal with. So it literally is the film, I keep saying literally because I can't pinpoint with enough specific examples where I noticed that films could have a theme beyond their plot, and it sort of opened up a whole new world of uh, re-watching and watching for me, which I think is why it's the movie that would best define the way I enjoy cinema. Which is, in, which is in examining the structure and the way that the movie's themes and ideas are presented to you? That's the best, that's the way that you enjoy them? Well, I, I, that's how I definitely enjoy watching them, but I think that that allows me to uh, sort of sift the uh, greater purpose or theme if the director intended to have one. I, that's my way But do you find yourself asking it. lots it's of more... questions that way? Like, do you feel like you're, you're analyzing it in the moment? Um, I think somewhat, but not any more than someone who's having a visceral interaction with the movie. So someone could be like, why is she running down that stairwell? And I'm asking, you know, why this stairwell? Is it important? You know, is it going to come into some plot narrative before? And so it's more like if you had the time to sit back and ask yourself these questions, I would hope some people would. It's, it's interesting. It's like, it's like watching Law and Order and trying to guess who the killer is, right. because you've watched so many Law and Orders, you know it's going to be I, the I second wonder, or third I wonder, person they talk to. I, I, I'm thinking about what you said, Dave, and I wonder if it's a screenwriter's job to make that kind of um, the structure and those sort of things, the technical aspects of writing, disappear, and if a great film, if those things are evident, but then you're trying to find them. If that ever stands in the way or something. Well, I mean, I think it's... I think the interesting thing about choosing a spoiler movie to talk about things I enjoy in cinema is that it's the way it unveils... And The Sixth Sense holds up to this, too, as, like, the atypical spoiler movie because The Sixth Sense has a lot of cool, you know, hidden themes in its composition and use of color to sort of give you an idea of what the twist of that movie is. Um, but I like the idea... When I see those things show up in a film, what I see is a steady hand. I see a screenwriter and a director who know what they're doing, who know that, you know, nothing mm. should be up on screen unless it's serving a purpose to your character story or theme. And like, well, what we have to be careful about is confusing themes with clues. Uh, and I think that I think one of the reasons that Fight Club appealed to you so much that you chose it for, for this episode was because like a lot of. Thing, like a lot of Chuck Palahniuk's writing or things that would be adapted from his writing. Uh, it's really a, a story that's thought and then just sort of like, you know, battered into plot. Uh, I think that, you know, his, he, he, I mean, Fight Club essentially, if you think about the actual events, is really just a series of ideas uh, that sort of build upon one another and are occasionally spiced up by a little bit of action, you know, where the, they'll, they'll start Operation Mayhem or they'll, you know, Bob will get shot or whatever the case might be um, until the big reveal. And so, I mean, I think that what, what it does is that it actually, rather than infuse theme and, and idea into a, uh, in a discernible way to a younger audience into plot, it, 
it finds a very e- expressive means of, of putting plot into thought. Well, I mean, our two movies aren't that unalike from this particular angle, because what you're doing is showing the greater truth of a man by showing his extreme dramatized. And in this case, it interacts with him. But that's the same thing with Mishima, is that you're going to define him, you know, more by these works, even if he's, you know, seeing it abstractly. He ends up starting this whole Project Mayhem, Tyler Durden, living this life, and he doesn't learn to understand it, that it's him. He has to learn how to understand it by seeing it from a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree because we see it as he does. I mean, we see the uh, actual physical manifestation of his, you know, I- I- ideal expression of like and manhood and whatnot. Rather and, than saying, you know, here's an adaptation from this book, I think it weaves it in in a much more easily digestible form of having it manifest as this twist. And so I think they make really good use of it and the fact that they had to kind of live with it for the book. And in the book it's used as a completely different plot mechanic. It's used as a way... You know, to you could always say I and narrate a book and nobody's asking, you know, who is I until it's revealed. Whereas in a movie, you have to physically have a character that's there interacting. And I think it's a really clever way um, of structuring it that on your rewatch, you start realizing that a character just talking to himself about theme is more of a Chuck Palahniuk-like idea screed than it is a plot. Because the plot of the movie once you realize it's all one person doing it, it becomes much less important. Right. I mean, like what I'm saying essentially, and I think we're pretty much saying the same thing, is that what this conceit allowed the film to do is essentially rant endlessly about its central ideas, sort of formlessly. And and what the conceit did is it turned it into action. It turned it into plot and dialogue uh, and forward momentum. Whereas it, when you watch it for a second time and you understand what, what's happening, uh, it's very much just someone, you know, espousing endlessly about about what they uh, how they see the world. I, I just wanted to quickly ask Dave: do you, do you like theater? Are you a theater person at all, or even movies that have been adapted from plays? Um, I do. I think they each have to. I think each art form has its own specific reasons for existing. I think uh, theater is a great place to Tonight. do character dialogue scenes and to get ideas across much right. like Fight I mean, Club it ends seems up getting like them across. Really, that you're really what pays off for you is sometimes visual cues or ways of weaving in the ideas through uh oh my god I'm gonna say it mise en scène or you know just like <gasps> The, Someone had to say it. <laughs> you know the way the way that they're using cinema to reinforce those ideas. So I didn't know if something that might be more theatrical would be up your alley. I think it's I think it's more that this helped me define what I liked about art in cinema because up until this, it was you know cartoons and you know action movies from the eighties that you know yeah I liked, but I was also being shown them by people who had great love for them. And this was, I think, my experience of discovering pop cinema for myself oh. and f- figuring out what I could find in it Excellent. through being proactive. Dave, I, I really like that you picked the movie that kind of helped you uh, open up to what movies... I feel like that's an entire... That'll be our 50th quarter quell, is the movie that kind of opened your eyes to this, because I, I think that's really interesting. And I like that it's also... So you're saying I should do this quarter quell's Fight topic in 25? <laughs> okay. Well, yes. I, will, I will be talking about Titanic, so we'll need someone else oh, to Oh, boy. Broken glass, broken hungry 
Like I'm talking about a romance, um, mm. which uh, I th- which I think is probably, I mean, one of the best romances that movies have done, which is The Apartment, the uh, 1960 Billy Wilder movie. It's pretty famous. I think most people have seen it or at least familiar with the, with the plot behind it. It's Jacqueline and, and Shirley MacLaine. And it's the, the thing that I like about the, the thing that I, that I like about movies a lot in general and something that I think plays in a lot more in other movies is the way that they have of taking you to a place or a person or a point of view that you have no way of understanding. And this kind of t- uh, ties into Fight Club for me because Fight Club, I think, is a, is a really masculine movie. And I think that men have a way of connecting with it that women don't. But what's interesting about it for me is that I, it gives me a glimpse into the way that that works. And the apartment, even what though it is... What men think. <laughs> yeah, it, it really... I mean, and you could argue... I mean, I, 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 will, I will only say this one sentence before I butt out and complete this thought later when Katie's done introducing the film. But Fight Club and the Apartment are essentially, in all the ways that matter, the same movie. All right, go on. <laughs> all right. Go I won't Katie. discuss that since I haven't thought that through. But um, but what I, even though the apartment is set in a city I live in, uh, Jack Lemmon's apartment is located on West 67th Street, which I, is an area I know very well. But it's set in the New York City of the late 1950s, early 60s, one that's been kind of romanticized via Mad Men. Um, so it's, it's interesting if you're familiar with Mad Men to, to then watch the apartment. It's essentially the same era. But... It's, you know, Jack Lemmon works as this insurance agent in this massive, intimidating building. And Shirley MacLaine works in the, uh, as the elevator girl. And they're part of this corporate system that's so dehumanizing and so gigantic. And it opens with him narrating about how New York is an island full of 8 million people. And really, it goes through the sense. And, and, at, the, and at the end of the movie, at, you know, Jack Lemmon confesses his feelings. And he says he used to live like Robinson Crusoe and he was all alone. And then suddenly he saw footprints in the sand and there she was. And what this movie captures isn't just a sense of Wait, 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 wait. Was Jesus carrying him? Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, the movie <laughs> was about Jesus. Jesus carried Shirley MacLaine to him. It's a, it's oh, my a, God. It's a Christian allegory written Jesus by Jesus. Jesus is like a really nice guy when you think about it. Like, he lots of selfless things. Anyway. Didn't you see yes. Soul Surfer? Anyway. <laughs> oh, my God, Soul Surfer. He was, he was a nice man movie. He just took some girl's arm. <laughs> so the apartment isn't really about Jesus at all. Um, and But what, what I like about it is that the way that it's not just New York, which is a place I know well, but a New York of a specific time and a specific kind of hierarchy. And I like, I like watching old movies and that transport you in that way. And what I think makes the apartment timeless and part of why it, it affects me is that it, feels really sharp and really modern and it's incredibly well written which makes it very accessible there's a lot of old movies you can watch that you can learn about what it was like living in the 30s but it's hard to access the way that those movies worked but the writing in the apartment uh from iael diamond and billy wilder who were collaborators for a long time wait was that just a a war cry or is it iael diamond yeah uh, they, they collaborated for on a lot of Billy Wilder's movies and their writing. It's, this movie is incredibly funny and it's patches the way you talked about how you can show oh, it. Yeah. Groundhog it's also Day. harrowingly depressing. It's, it, well, that will, I'll get into that. But the way that you say you can show anyone Groundhog Day, I think, mm-hmm. I, I mean, this isn't a problem that we run into with our kind of film nerd friends, but people say they don't want to watch black and white movies. I remember in high school, We'd rent a movie with my friends, and people would say no black and white, and then you know we wouldn't. This one would run Young Frankenstein, and everybody'd be like, "Boo!" But so the apartment is in black and white. But if you get someone, you sit someone down to watch it who thinks that they can't access this, and it's so accessible. And it's and it's not just because it's pandering; it's because it's incredibly sharply written. And something that when I watch movies now, when I go to the movies and review them, if a script is sharp and if it's tight and if it feels like not not a moment is wasted and every character ties together. 
and but it also surprises you. That makes me happier than just about anything in a movie. And that's something that I think the apartment epitomizes. And it's, you know, it's it's not like you can expect every movie to be like that, but I think if you can see that and recognize why it's brilliant because of the writing. Uh, so yeah, so the, the sharp writing of the apartment reflects what I look for now, even though nothing is ever going to be that good. If something can come close to it, that's what I think really makes movies work. Um, well, what I was going to ask is uh, because the apartment is such a dialogue driven script and you were talking about the sharpness of a screenplay being uh, a big gateway point for you. Do you respond more to, you know, verbally heavy films than you do something like Drive, for example, to think of a recent example of, of, hmm. of something that is more visually oriented? I think in some way I do, but the reason that I, that I chose The Apartment as, a, as opposed to, I mean, I, don't, I can give you an example of a verbally heavy film, but I think the visuals in The Apartment really aid the dialogue, the huge deep focus in the offices of showing row after row of other insurance people, or when I always think of Jack Lemmon going to sleep on the benches in Central Park, there's again, row after row of benches, and so much of this movie takes place in this one apartment, but the way that The Apartment is used in locations and the way that the outdoor photography is, I think it's visual in a way that supports the themes of the script. So I think both elements have to be there for me to feel really attached to it. But I think maybe I do like have that kind of uh, instinctive response to dialogue. Even though I like to drive a lot, I think something with a sharp screenplay like this will, uh, you know, appeal mm-hmm. to me more. Or I was also curious that you mentioned like you like movies that remind you of older times or are able to capture this older vibe. Um, well, because this movie was made in that time, do you think it's be- that's why it does that? Can modern films even stand up to them for you? Like, do you find yourself going back to older films and wondering why new ones aren't as good? Or? No, no, not not, no, not, just- not that at all. It's that the I like being able to get a window into the way a specific time worked, like understanding the way that the 60s was or even, right. you know, the way that the early 90s was in Groundhog Day. Like every movie – made in its time, set in its time, really capture something about it. And we learn so much about it. And even, you know, even Westerns, we learn about the Old West through the idealized version that we saw in the movies. And I just, I just like that ability to be transported into something, even if it's, you know, contemporary masculinity, like in Fight Club, which is, you know, not an earlier time, but it's just different. The most expressive element of the time period um, in this film is not the look and feel of its stylized New York City, but the dynamics between the, the men and women. Yeah, totally. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, can I, would this be an okay time for me to sort of follow through on that thought from earlier as to... Uh, sure. I mean, because I mean, I think essentially, um, I mean, the, it, it's, uh, while, there, while there's is essentially chiding the menches in the crowd, like uh, like Jack Lemmon plays in this film, as sort of well, these guys Well, he's telling, who, he's trying to pump them up to be menches. Well, I mean, these the guys who, no, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a gentle... Uh, wagging of the finger to the guys who cling to their belief that a lifetime of simpering kindness will be rewarded just by the virtue of the fact that it should be. I mean, it, it's essentially uh, saying that you you can't feel sorry for yourself and, and because you're in sort of your own consciousness and, you know, inherently egocentric and trying to do well, that good things are going to come and, and you're going to be thinned out from the herd and, and you know, fulfill the destiny that you see for yourself, that you have to be proactive and, and take advantage of these things and not be a doormat for uh, the people who have already done that to other people, uh, such as the executives in this film, one of whom, David White, uh, a.k.a. Larry Tate from Bewitched, got to point that out whenever he's in a movie. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think essentially these, these movies are very much... The same, and they end in a similar way, uh, I think, as well. I mean, it's a little less penis in the apartment, uh, but a um, it's a smidgen less. It stays in the pants, but I think that the 
the telling final lines of each film re- reflect one another. Well, yeah, and it also is about like uh, the kind of the self actualization, like you say, like kind of becoming your like becoming the person that you need to be. But what I like about the apartment too is that it's this incredibly effective romance, and romance is something movies try but don't get right very often and i really like just the dynamic but it's like seeing actors act together well it's something that's so ephemeral and so hard to define but when you see it work in a movie like this it feels amazing yeah where where fight club rewards its character for that achievement with self-actualization and and like a you know a bit of uh manhood what they they reward jack lemon's character in this with the romance with with the girl yeah, which, you know, may or may, as Patch has pointed out, this movie's got incredible darkness to it, which I think is part of what makes it so good, is that, you know, as we were talking about with Groundhog Day, recognizing kind of nihilism underneath what's a very funny movie is what gives things significance and, you know, helps them feel like they matter. You know, I chose this over some like it hot because I feel like it's got that sense of meaning and weight behind it that you know something like it hot as brilliant as it is doesn't have as much of i think it has a better jack lemon performance because he's slightly more restrained and he has to find weird character moments sort of around the dialogue yeah yeah i mean it's really hard to play that kind of straight man and he's incredibly good at it everyone else gets to do a lot more dramatic stuff than he does and he really effectively builds a character he's not he's not revealed as you know sort of a sad protagonist until much later in the film than that character should be the way it's written just by the virtue of you really liking jack lemon's portrayal of him yeah and 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 not not to be overly nostalgic about how old movie stars are better i think you know there are people who are equivalent to jack lemon working today but i like that kind of star power reflected on screen it's interesting that you say that because um i i and this isn't true because you like a gamut of of films but i do see i do think you love hollywood in some way and i do too and i don't i mean i kind of briefly mentioned this in groundhog day that it is a little conventional and kind of owns that and it's one of the reasons i think both of us like the help in some way well part Mm -hmm. of what makes i mean not to focus too much about the merits of this film rather than why katie responds to it but i think part of what makes the apartment so successful is on top of all this other stuff it also completely nails the conventions of a solid romantic comedy yes exactly. Uh, you know i think explicitly about the old lang syne scene where uh you know, Kubrick runs, you know, across town to, yeah. to meet him at the very end. I mean, it's it's the sort of thing that is echoed in When Harry Met Sally yeah. and many romantic comedies but since, I, but it is perfected in this movie. I think I think convention can get a lot – it can get a bad rap. And again, we touched on this when we talked about the help in a past uh, – The help, the help, the help, Jeez. The help. I can't stop talking about the help. No, I'm just like – the help is a perfect example uh, and we brought it up when we talked about of of using convention and owning it and having a nice, sweet, little tied-up thing. But if it's sharp – and done really well by great actors. I mean, The Apartment is much, much better filmed than The Help. Um, but <laughs> it's just like that sugary sweet perfection is nice. And I see you responding uh, yeah. strongly to movies like that, Katie. Yeah, I, you well, love Hollywood. Yeah. So, yeah, to wrap things up, if, if I may, I think Hollywood is this, this system that fascinates me. It's a business. It's an incredibly ruthless business. It's one that will replicate a formula over and over and over again. And if you look back far enough, it's been replicating the same formula since the very beginning. And I just like it when something that's a machine and it's that heartless gets enough things right that something this perfect can come out. And it's this, you know, you, you only know it. Like you, you respond so instinctively to it because this system is so a part of uh, all the way that we grow up watching movies. And I love when something that's big and expensive and really rewarded is also wonderful. It happens once in a blue moon. And, it, and I think almost nothing feels better than that. And I love that we picked four wildly different films yes. that all uh, essentially had had very critical commonalities between them. 
Yeah, um, and we yeah, this is guys, this was a great idea. If I may say so myself. We just unified Captain Planet is now going to emerge from <laughs> our movie rings. Captain Movie Planet. I call not being Mati. <laughs> Heart is harsh. Heart is the lame. If you, if you enjoyed this, you guys should come to our live show, which will be Film Court, yes. which will depend on you knowing a little bit about us. It'll benefit you. And if you, you didn't enjoy this, you should also definitely come to our Film Court. So Give us a you piece can of your yell mind. over us. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that that's the end of our uh, talking about our specific movies. We're going to wrap things up with uh, your lightning round answers for dessert, and that'll be it. Dave, what was our lightning round question? In honor of the finally dying, perhaps completely dead, we don't know how this weekend's going to go, summer movie season, what's the most memorable thing you saw at the movies this summer? I guess I will go first. I um, I picked at... Rubik's Cube. That's not spelled right. R-E-U-B-I-X, in case anyone wants to follow Rubik's Cube. Uh, And they said X-Men First Class's death by coin scene, which I didn't love the movie, but that scene was pretty badass. Thank you, Michael Fassbender and that uh, Nazi coin or whatever. Killing Kevin Bacon. That was pretty badass, and it was really slow. Oh, I'm going to go with uh, Ginger Dynamo, Twitter user. Who said drunk standing up during Captain America screaming La Resistance, then puking? Yep, that's not even in English. (laughs) I don't know why anyone would stand up and say La Resistance, but it is pretty. It makes as much sense as that Captain America is on Canada Dry bottles. So whatever. (laughs) Wow. Um, Um, Oh, go ahead, David. uh, I'll I'll go with uh, Josh Tyler, who said, uh, who I just realized reading his name is the. Publisher of Cinema Blend, so I think that's cheating. <laughs> um, maybe I should go with somebody else, but uh, no, I'll go with him because he says Melissa McCarthy and her van full of puppies and bridesmaids. Aww. Because while I did think that bridesmaids was sort of uh, amateurish mess that was over long, Melissa McCarthy stole the show. That's a brilliant scene, and it was great to see a uh, actor from my beloved Gilmore Girls, uh, you know, steal a Hollywood movie. Yeah, the only uh, the only response we got a lot of people saying bridesmaids, and the only thing we got more, which I guess I'll go ahead and pick, is uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So many people picked the moment where uh, Caesar says no the first time he speaks, and I, I have to agree that's that a gave pretty me some outstanding. Yeah, it's a pretty outstanding moment, and I like the idea that uh, Andy Serkis's performance as Caesar will be one of the big things that lasts from the summer. And the guy puking during Captain America. <laughs> yes, that that will never be forgotten. <laughs> no worries. All right, uh, that does it for this week's show. Um, I, I I'm so I'm so glad that we did this quarter quell. Um, everybody, uh, tell tell the people who you are. Okay. Oh, hey. I am, oh yeah. Oh, no, no, go. no. I got, There's an I order to this I, patches. Yeah, my bad, my bad. I'm Dave I with th- the seven. I'm Dave with the seven patches. Yeah, you are. That's right. And uh, I'm uh, writing weekly six things with Dave at LatinoReview.com. This week's going to be about Michael Jackson. Uh, I am David Ehrlich. You can find me, where can you find me? On Movies.com, where I write their Criterion Corner column and some other stuff. On Box Office Magazine, where I'll be writing reviews. And at Criterion Corner tumblr.com the site that i while away my days at and i am matt patches i am the movies editor for hollywood.com so you can go there to read my stuff and you can find me on twitter at mr patches m-i-s-t-e-r patches and i also run another podcast not movies related everyone needs a break uh called sophisticast or the sophisticates so look it up on uh, itunes wait before katie says goodbye i cannot end this episode with a preposition uh the site at which I while away my days. 
Go on, Katie. <laughs> All right. I'm Katie. I work, I work here at Cinema Blend. Uh, also at Kino Katie, there's another installment of Virgin Territory. It's been a long time, but I talk about The Road Warrior, um, which is in this, is in this podcast, podcast feed, if you're listening to it there, but it's also on video at the site, so you can see it there. And um, follow me on Twitter where it says, and um, we'll see you next week. That's a wrap. Ka-chow! Every week, David. Every week. <laughs> Catchphrase. What's happening? Yeah. 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 It's poppin', y'all. It's poppin', y'all. Don't you leave, motherfucker. This mixtape is called Sorry for the Wait.